Hi everyone, my name is Arnab. And I'm Anj. And you're listening to another episode of Kathakar, a podcast where we discuss important turning points in history and their human aspects. Alexander II, also known as Alexander the Liberator, ascended the throne of the Russian Empire in 1855, and had his sights set on extensive reform following his nation's defeat in the Crimean War. During his reign, Alexander would see the passage of military reform, judicial reform, education reform, the implementation of the Zemstvo, or local self-government, and most notably, the emancipation of the serfs. However, even amidst this period of great domestic reform, Alexander managed to get blood on his hands with his order for the final conquest of the Caucasus. Today, we seek to understand his motivations behind this conquest and the everlasting effects on the region in contrast with his policies and campaigns pursued on his home front. To understand these events in light of each other, we are joined by Dr. Peter Holquist, the Ronald S. Lauder Endowed Term Associate Professor of History at the University of Pennsylvania focusing on Imperial and Soviet Russian history. So, let's get started. Dr. Holquist, would you uh, kindly elaborate on the different, like, prior to all of this, I just want to contextualize the situation that was happening in the Caucasus. Uh, from around 1200 to 1850s, real quickly, uh, what do you, why are there so many different ethnic groups that exist in the uh, Caucasus? at this time? We come to this question of the Caucasus because Arnab had, had asked me about discussing uh, major events in Russian history and perhaps some events that are less um, known or might be unexpected. Of course, it would be very easy to do the Russian Revolution in 1917. But um, as Arnab and I were discussing, um, Alexander II is very well known as, as uh, who rules from 1855 to 1881, Emperor Alexander II is known as a great liberal and reforming emperor. It's under him that you have the emancipation of the serfs in Russia in 1861, the same year that the civil war breaks out in the United States. And he oversees a, a wide reforming program. And there's this great irony that at the same time, um, Alexander II is a czar under whom the Russian empire achieves what they described at the time was the final or decisive conquest of the Caucasus. Um, in fact, um, as I told uh, Arnab, there's um, a very famous church in St. Petersburg uh, called the Church of Christ the Savior on the Blood that was built between 1883 and 1907. It's, it's, it's sort of an iconic image of St. Petersburg. It's, it's very sort of Rococo, Muscovite, which is it, it, deeply ironic because the city of Petersburg is European rather than Muscovite, and it was built intentionally that way. Um, it is built where it is built because it was a church raised on the exact spot where Alexander II, uh, the czar of this story, the emperor of this story, was assassinated by terrorists in 1881. And the nave of that church is built on the exact spot where his carriage was blown up. And er, so in a sense, it's a church to the... the um, to the person and the reign of Alexander II. And if you go around that church, um, there are stone stele or stone blocks that uh, highlight the achievements of his reign, the emancipation of these serfs, the abolition of censorship, the introduction of the Zemstvo, the self-ruling um, administrative bodies in the empire, um, the judicial reform of 1864. And uh, among the, the, the stone 
markers there is one with the dates 1859 and 1864 that notes that uh, it was under Alexander II that the Russian Empire finally at last, after half a century of struggle, achieved the final and decisive conquest of the Caucasus. Um, he did this with the aid of one of his great reforming uh, uh, right-hand men, a guy named Dmitry Milyutin, a major statesman and reformer who was the war minister. And uh, again, was very much in the liberal camp. And again, the great irony of this great, great liberal is the guy who is essentially the man who oversees um, a very ruthless and a hard-handed uh, conquest of the Caucasus, uh, ultimately achieved through massive population expulsion. So what is the Caucasus? Let's maybe get into this. Um, First, geographically, I mean, the Caucasus is an isthmus, um, a body of land between two bodies of water. And the two bodies of water are the land uh, in the east, the landlocked Caspian Sea, and in the west, the Black Sea, with its outlet to the Turkish Straits uh, to the Mediterranean. Um, in this area, there is a territory um, that is in the north. Um, been dominated by Russia. These are the Kuban Plains, the south of Russia and the south of Ukraine. Then you have a major mountain chain, the Caucasus, which includes the highest uh, mountain in all of Europe, Mount Elbrus. Um, and then south of that, you have something south of that mountain chain, you have something that the Russians call Zakavkazia, or the Transcaucasus, or the South Caucasus. Now, the, the, the Transcaucasus uh, is what is now essentially the states of Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia. And this, what we'll be talking about today is essentially that space, the mountain chain in between the Russian plains and the Transcaucasus. It's a space in the period that we're talking about that is essentially a middle ground or shatter zone between the Russian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, and the Persian Empire. You're entirely right, Ansh, that this is an area that has um, a large number of peoples in it, um, uh, in part because it is at this, this uh, suture point or ground point between uh, empires. Um, there is not, you often have uh, more dispersed social relations in areas uh, in the high mountains. This is true of Europe and it's true of many er other areas of the world. This is an area that is uh, Islamicized late and is not Isla Islamicized totally. It's, it's largely Sunni uh, with some uh, Shiite. The Russian sort of presence here is, is intermittent up until the 18th century. I mean, the major players until the 18th century are the Persian Empire and the Ottoman Empire. And indeed, down in Armenia, down to today, there remains a major uh, Persian-Iranian presence. The Russians under Catherine II, from 1762 to 1796, advanced down to the Kuban Plains, that is these plains that are leading up to the Caucasus Mountains. Um, and under Catherine, you also have the Russian conquest of the areas of New Russia, now Ukraine. Uh, New Russia, much like New England, by the way, the areas of imperial conquest, um, and the conquest of the Crimea. And what's important about this is until this period, the Black Sea, and remember, the Black Sea is essentially the western boundary of the Caucasus, had been an Ottoman lake. And it's with the rise of, of Catherine and the eruption of Russia into the zone that, that uh, the uh, Ottoman monopoly on 
uh, the Black Sea is, is challenged. What occurs now is, is, is a little bit complicated. In the early 19th century, um, in basically three spurts, the Russians end up controlling the Transcaucasus. That's the, that is the area south of the Caucasus mountain chain, what is now Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia. First of all, the Georgian kingdom under pressure from the Persians and with a king who dies in 1801, um, gifts his kingdom to the Russian empire. And then there are two major um, paroxysms of war between Russia and the Ottomans and the Persians. One, during the Napoleonic Wars, when there's a Russo-Turkish war between 1806 and 1812 and a Russo-Persian war between 1804 and 1813. So while the Russian Empire is fighting the Napoleonic Empire, it's busy in the Caucasus and in the South fighting both the Ottomans and the Persians at the same time and largely wins. There's a sex, second paroxysm of wars that happens in the late 1820s with the Russian per, Russo-Persian War of 1826-28 and a uh, Russo-Turkish War of 1828-29 that result in a total Russian victory. And what this does is it gives Russia total control of the Transcaucasus, that is the area south of the Caucasus mountain chain. So they control the plains north of the mountain chain and they control the territory in the Transcaucasus south of the mountain chain. The Caucasus proper, that mountain chain between the Kuban Plains and the South Caucasus remains in a very ambiguous state, both actually and in terms of sovereignty. Both the Ottomans and the Russians continued to claim this territory through various vassal princes. And in fact, the Ottomans exert really no control and the, and the Russians exert very, very little control um, over this space in these periods. Um, gradually, several of the princes and elites of the small tribes in this area uh, end up pledging loyalty, not sovereignty, but loyalty uh, to the Russian empire, while the Ottomans still claim many of the tribes along the Black Sea coast. Uh, a major development here is that the Russians, you know, in a sense, have this um, this sort of satellite area south of the mountain chain that they need to get to because they don't control the mountain chain. They control the area north of it and they control the area south of it. And they develop this um, uh, road that becomes very important in the 19th and 20th century called the Georgian Military Highway. Um, it's a major engineering operation. And for much of the 19th century, especially the first half of the 19th century, that is the only windpipe that really exists between Russia proper um, and the Transcaucasus. It's, it's, it's a major figure in much of the uh, golden age of Russian literature. Lermontov writes about it, Pushkin writes about it, not least because these people were themselves officers in the Russian army or traveled with it. Um, the population of the Caucasus mountain chain, I'm not speaking in the South Caucasus, which is very differentiated, but the mountain chain itself um, has a, a a, a wide range of very small tribes, many of them with languages that exist within their own language families. So they're not even related to Indo-European or even the South Caucasian languages. And the peoples we're talking about are the Chechens, the Ingush and the Dagestanis in the east of the Caucasus mountain chain and the Circassians, um, which include the Adige and the Cherkess and the Abhas 
in the west of the Caucasus mountain chain um, along the Black Sea. These groups are generically known in Russian as the mountaineers, Gartsi, sort of this, this, this generic understanding of uh, you know, pastoral imperial societies and how they relate to peoples in the mountains is very um, salient here. Um, these are peoples that have been Islamicized, but have been Islamicized late and not fully. They retain, instead of Sharia law, for instance, a very robust tradition of customary law, something called Badat. Some of these, and indeed the most of these groups were ruled through princely families or elites, but other societies, particularly in the Western side of the Caucasus were much more egalitarian. Um, these societies had, um, I wouldn't say slavery, but they had bonded classes, people who served the elites, which will become important in 1864. Um, and oftentimes the Russians until the 1840s were able to divide and conquer in this territory, largely by buying off or bribing the princely families. Um, uh, one uh, scholar of Russian imperialism has described the Russian advance into the Caucasus as uh, colonialism by invitation. That is, these various tribes would uh, invite Russia in to mobilize Russian force against their own local competitors. So there was no great unity in these areas. The immediate prehistory to the Russian Caucasus is the rise of the Caucasian imam, uh, the, the three imams uh, in the Caucasus, uh, culminating in the rise of Imam Shamil. Um, and what this points to is the fact that the Russian conquest is not simply the story of an inexorable Russian advance acting on these native societies. There were changes that were going on within these communities themselves, some, some very profound changes. Um, notably, um, in the late 18th century, that ha there had emerged a reformist Sufi movement um, that would be headed by one religious or political leader. They, of course, opposed Russian colonization, but they equally argued for the reform and purification of their own societies. And, and you're seeing why I emphasize the fact that these societies to this point had been insufficient or had been um, not in completely Islamicized. And that is, that is what these imams were seeking. Um, they preached a return to Islam. That is that you know, many of these elites particularly had taken on you know, Russian social customs and would drink and would socialize with women. They, they, these Shamil and this movement argued against that. They argued for temperance, a banning of alcohol and, and, and within their own societies argued for the preeminence of Sharia law over customary law, Adat, which had, was very strongly based. Adat customary law was based on uh, uh, a, a, a culture of uh, revenge and retribution, which meant was very difficult to unite any of these tribes when you've got a culture of revenge uh, against one another. They tried to suppress this customary law. Um, and as a movement, it, it was largely favored by the lower classes because it was largely an egalitarian movement. And though not you know, Marxist or explicitly anti-elitist, the effect was that it, it emphasized um, egalitarianism as opposed to respecting the customary role of these elites. 
Now, Shamil comes in as the third imam of this movement. Um, his, his reign lasts 20 years from 1840 to 1860, 1859 exactly. Um, and it's really under him, it's, it's not that there had been an ex inexorable, ruthless, permanent opposition to Russian rule. I mean, the Russians had been able, in a sense, to creep and crawl and patchwork their way into the Caucasus that gets then rebuffed with the rise of this movement, um, and particularly the rise of, of Shamil. This movement will spearhead the resistance to Russian rule. Um, it's largely based in the Eastern Caucasus. Um, and in the process, um, through much repression and an iron fist, uh, Shamil and his movement manages to, uh, in a way, unite these very fractious and quarrelsome tribes in a way that they've never, ever been united before. So in a sense, what the Russians are addressing is not just the tribes as they always were, they're coming into a totally changing situation due to domestic, religious, and social dynamics that are taking place um, in the Caucasus. So what I wanna stress here is that there were internal, an internal process of consolidation that's going on due to the internal dynamics of these societies, just as the Russian empire is gearing up to um, uh, uh, move into the region. On top of all of this, uh, this movement by Shamil and uh, uh, the, 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 the Sufi reform movement, was able to capitalize on the resentment of many people that the elites um, had cut these deals with the Russian empire. So, so it's not just a religious movement, it's also partially a social movement against the elites who had been cooperating uh, with the Russian uh, empire. And I guess I've, I've given you a lot in a very short time over a lot of history. Um, I can go into um, what Alexander II is gonna to try to do, but if there are any questions or things you want to uh, explore here, I'd be happy to do so. Yeah, so I actually do have one question. And so you mentioned how Shamil was able to unify a lot of the groups in the Eastern Caucasus, <laughs> like uh, I believe Dagestan and Chechnya and that area. But how, how effective was, uh, were, were his efforts in trying to unify uh, these regions with Circassia, which is part of the Western region? Like, is, could this be seen as a major downfall in Shamil's efforts to kind of hold back the Russian advances or push back? Arnab, you're exactly right. I mean, one of the reasons I, I, I mentioned, you're, you're, this is absolutely perfectly right. Um, you know, I'd mentioned that there were these internal dynamics and that there was a very fractious society that Shamil goes a great deal further than anyone previously to unifying. But in the process, he activates a lot of resentments and a lot of jealousy against him and his appointees. Um, he is operating, he himself um, is operating out of Chechnya and Dagestan. These are societies that are more hierarchical and in which he's more of a local. Um, it, he's, he's simply more of a presence there. He operates through, um, he creates his own military formations, which is entirely new. Um, and he operates through a, a set of appointees, administrative religious appointees called naibs. Um, and uh, he more or less is successful in appointing these um, in the Eastern Caucasus, though there, there are, are reactions and resentments. I mean, the most famous case is the case of Haji Marad and the Avar princes who in the 1850s uh, rebel actually against uh, Shamil's rule. 
As you pointed out, there was there was much more resentment against Shamil in the Western Caucasus. Um, among other things, the Western Caucasus was less Islamicized than the Eastern Caucasus. They were much more fractious and smaller uh, social groupings. And there were social groupings that were much more egalitarian. So it was much more difficult. They didn't, Shamil's emissaries did not find in place and a larger existing social hierarchy, which they could co-opt. They would have had to entirely construct it de novo from new. Um, and uh, the person he had appointed caused a great deal of resentment among the uh, Cherkess and Nadegay tribes, um, meaning that they were much less committed to his cause. I mean, they, had, they, they didn't love Russian rule, but they also resented the extension of control by Shamil over, uh, over their territories. And I do have one more question. So that that actually that, that makes a lot of sense actually, because um, I was I was thinking about that. But then another question I had was actually concerning the um, the, the the wealthy classes or the princely classes uh, pledging their allegiance. So uh, was it the uh, the eastern or the, the Dagestanis or the people in that region were they still pledging allegiance to Russia? Like it doesn't uh, to the Russian Empire. Like it doesn't makes sense to me why they would pledge allegiance to the Russian empire over the Ottoman empire, because, you know, the, they have the common religion. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, part of it was resentments at how they believe the Ottomans had treated them in the past. Um, and remember the Ottomans at this point are in, uh, um, uh, they have just lost two major wars against the Russians. And it is looking like Russian power is, is extending there. Um, I mean, you know, Marx said that people make history, but they don't make history in conditions of their own making. None of these princes would have liked to have to choose between the Ottomans and the Russians. They would have much preferred to not have to have chosen between either of them, but they had to choose. Um, and it became, a, you know, a really complicated, in a sense, devil's dilemma. Um, and I was going to save this uh, for the conclusion as a recommendation, but really one of the best portrayals of the ambivalencies and the dilemmas on all sides of this story is Leo Tolstoy's uh, novella, what some people consider his best prose work, uh, called Haji Marad. Now, Tolstoy is somebody who knew the Caucasus. He campaigned in it with the Russian Imperial Army. Um, and he deeply historically researched this particular novella. It's a, it's a really fine piece of work. Um, and his sympathies fall not on any one of the political or religious sides. He sides with sort of individuals and personality types. And it's very clear that Haji Marad um, is uh, a, 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 a sympathetic protagonist um, because he is independent and willful. I mean, the, the story begins with the uh, narrator picking up a thistle and thinking about the, the, the beauty of an individual wildflower, but as soon as you pick it, you kill it. And, and this was his you know, meditation upon what ends up happening to Haji Marad, who initially sides with the Russians, then decides to side with Shamil. Then when Shamil seizes his son, decides to go back to the Russians, and then decides he's going to flee from them and ends up being killed. Um, and I, I, I bring that forth uh, only if, if you want a, a type of sort of thick description 
of what it was like having to choose among uh, unappetizing option, uh, options. I mean, the thing is, I mean, Shamil's rule threatened the place and role of these princely families, and he did rule with a iron rod uh, in Haji Marad. I mean, the the reason Haji Marad originally sides with the Russians is that the family, the Avar princely family he sided with were cast over a, a gorge by Shamil as a way of taking control of that, that community. So I actually haven't read really too much of, uh, of Haji Murad, but I'm, I'm curious, what were the differences between, I, I know I'm going into the literature a little bit here, but what were the differences between Haji Murad and Shamil that led him to go back to the Russians? I will speak only in terms of Tolstoy's portrayal. I will not speak, um, I, I am, I'm, I'm personally not an expert on Shamil and his movement. Um, my specialty is, is Russian imperial expansion. Um, the way Tolstoy portrays it is Shamil is, in fact, very similar to the Russian military commanders, that he wants um, basically unquestioning obedience, very doer, um, very one-dimensional, um, does not have a wide emotional repertoire. Um, and, you know, in a sense, you, ha you have bad Russians on one side in Haji Marad, you have, you know, Shamil and some bad uh, Chechens and uh, followers of the Imam on the other side. And in between, you have sympathetic Russians and uh, natives who are trying to navigate these, uh, these people who believe in absolute certainties and aren't able to make uh, accommodations for nuance and individualities. I mean, the, the big character um, uh, in uh, the, the, the most sympathetic Russian character beyond the surf soldiers. There are several surf soldiers who are presented very sympathetically um, as sort of nice people, but dumb cannon fodder. I mean, the, the most negative portrayal in that story is of Nicholas II, which is the reason that that story was uh, censored for a good number of years. Uh, there, there, there's this absolutely devastating portrayal of Nicholas II um, at a ballet and having an adulterous relationship with a ballerina while lives are being lost and not giving um, a damn about that. Um, but the most sympathetic character on the Russian side is a character named Lora Smelikov, who's in fact Armenian. And he's the one Russian in the story who's able to speak Tatar and able to speak with Haji Marad uh, in, in a common language. And I think that speaks very much to sort of Tolstoy's agenda that you need a middle ground. You, you know, anybody who believes they know what's entirely right is much to be suspected. But I brought, I, I brought you all up to the fact that uh, Shamil is, is successfully resisting Russian rule um, from 1840 into the 1850s. In fact, very successfully, much more. There is more resistance and much more successful resistance under Shamil than there had been previous to that. So again, it, it's, it's not as if this is a timeless struggle of civilizations. The situation changes with the advance of the Russians and the activization of this uh, Muslim uh, Sufi reform movement. In general, under Alexander II, um, he pursues a very pacific, non-activist foreign policy. Now, it, this position is one that comes out of weakness because he comes to the throne in the midst of and in the aftermath of Russia's defeat in the Crimean War. Um, and um, 
so it's 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 not a um, Pacific policy out of choice, but out of situation. Nevertheless, um, from the time of Alexander the First, in the it's it's kind of like the United States. Um, you know, when is the United States at war? Well, you know, it has civil wars and it has wars abroad, but but through much of the 19th century, the later 19th century in particular, it is waging war. It's got it's got its own domestic Indian wars. Mm-hmm. Similarly, um, despite external foreign peace, I mean, despite all of these wars in the Caucasus in these two paroxysms with the, the Ottoman Empire and the Persian Empire um, in the Napoleonic era and then in 1827 to 1829, um, there continues to be campaigning in the Caucasus um, literally from 1804 down to 1864 um, to varying degrees of intensity and with varying strategies. And um, you you are much better off, rather than looking for times of war and peace in this period, than looking at what particular types of tactics and strategy Russian military forces were pursuing. So under Alexander I, um, there was a really aggressive and ruthless policy um, to try to suppress the mountain tribes in the Caucasus. This was underseen by a general named um, Yeramolov. Um, the policies he pursued there were, were often described as policies of terror, using didactic and exemplary violence to try to terrify the population into submission. Um, it doesn't work. Um, it, it ends up causing a lot of resentment. Um, the uh, ongoing struggles continue under the next emperor, Nicholas I, reigns 1825 to 1855. Um, in this period, the, the Russian command in the Caucasus pursues a number of different approaches that determine the intensity of the conflict. So at first, they attempt to wage pitched battles with these tribes who are essentially waging guerrilla warfare. Um, uh, and th- this ends up being disastrous for the Russians. It, it, it doesn't achieve its aim, and it leads to high losses. The Russians then embraced a policy of what, what in World War I the French called bite and hold, incremental advance through the building of fortresses, the construction of roads, um, the campaign against individual mountaineer strong points, a, 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 if you're interested in ecological history, a dedicated policy of deforestation to deprive the mountaineers of um, uh, that as cover, but also as uh, uh, some of the resources they were relying on. Um, and at the same time, the Russians are trying to bribe and buy off local elites, um, which is taking place in this dynamic where they're having to choose between, you know, the race basically between a rock and a hard place between Shamil and the Russian empire. And again, it's it's a choice they'd rather not have to make, but it's, 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 it's one they're confronted with. In the middle of this, Russia engages in the Crimean War, which for our story is relevant because it also involves the Ottomans. And the Crimean War runs from 1854 to 1856. It begins very well for the Russians against the Ottomans, but then um, the British, the French, and the Sardinians, soon to be the Italians, get themselves involved. Um, They take the war to the Russians, um, uh, particularly in the Crimea, um, in the Black Sea, um, and defeat Russia on Russia's own ground, which for Russia is a major shock 
because for the past 150 years, the Russian empire had gone from triumph to triumph. It was the Russian army that marched into Napoleon's Paris in 1814, headed by its Cossacks. Um, Russia had had this, this you know, almost an uninterrupted string of military triumphs. And then under Nicholas I, they have this major defeat. In the middle of the war, uh, Nicholas I dies, heartbroken, and he bequeaths a losing war to his son, Alexander II, who comes to the throne in the midst of this very bad feat. Alexander II decides that uh, one of the lessons that comes from this reform is that the Russia, which everyone thought was so great because it had defeated Napoleon at the beginning of the 19th century, has now become obsolete and antiquated. And that to have a modern army, you need to have a modern society. And it was this military defeat to a significant degree that leads Alexander II to undertake these major domestic reforms at home, um, not least the emancipation of the serfs so that you could have a modern conscript army. Um, there's a major debate in Russian literature about what actually causes the emancipation of the serfs in 1861, but one of the major positions is uh, it, it in fact was a precondition for uh, reforming Russian society to have a modern Russian uh, army. The treaty that Russia signs in 1856, the Treaty of Paris at the end of this humiliating defeat, um, is, is much better than it might have been for Russia. It doesn't lose any territory. I mean, what, what they really feared if the war had gone on doesn't happen. But for the story we're telling today, there's one major provision of the Treaty of Paris that is relevant. Russia has to forswear by the Treaty of Paris having any naval presence in the Black Sea. None. So uh, the Black Sea, of course, also covers the Western Caucasus. Um, and this will become significant. So after 1856, Russia generally, on the European stage, pursues a Pacific foreign policy seeking to avoid complications or what its uh, foreign minister described as Russia is not sulking after the Crimean War, Russia is composing itself, right? And Russia is very weak at this stage, both because it's been defeated, but equally because after the defeat, they've gone on this major domestic reform program that they're in the middle of and it's not yet finished. So that they're, they're profoundly aware of how weak they are, not just to, because of the defeat, but because they're in the midst of a major reform process that has not yet been completed. Now, during the war, and also after it, the Ottomans, but also the British and the French, had sent emissaries to the coasts of the Western Caucasus and also had landed arms, hoping, in a sense, to raise these tribes uh, against the Russians. This becomes all the more terrifying after 1856, because after 1856, the Russians don't even have a navy to try to prevent this. They're totally open on that Western Caucasus coast um, uh, following the Treaty of Paris. So aware that you've got this sort of bleeding ulcer in the Caucasus, that you are in a position of weakness, there's a real imperative to solve this problem quickly and once and for all. Um, because if you let it fester, you um, face what the war minister said is, is losing everything that we have invested and tried for for the past two decades. So while Russia is specific everywhere else, the war minister 
and the Tsar embark on a major um, anti-insurgency campaign against Shamil in the Caucasus. They they keep the army there at full military footing. They, I mean, the, the treasury is absolutely bankrupt after the Crimean War. There's a major fight between the finance ministry and the war ministry as to whether they're going to keep the Caucasus Corps on full military footing, which is immensely expensive, or not. And the military wins this discussion by saying, it's very expensive now, but we don't solve this now. We're going to be dealing with this for decades. So let's put the money up now and get it solved. And they actually succeed. And by 1859, um, in part due to significant defections among Shamil's allies, um, the Russian Caucasus army uh, lays siege to and finally seizes Shamil's uh, hometown of Gimri in 1859. So that's that date of 1859 um, on that marker on the Church of the Blood. That date marks with the defeat of Shamil who was captured and sent to Russia and eventually will be released to um, live out his days in Mecca. He's, he's kept as, 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 a, as a very um, you know, honored prisoner, um, but he is captured. So 1859 marks the defeat of the Chechens and the Dagestanis under Shamil in the Eastern Caucasus. Here we get to the most contentious side of the Russian conquest of the Caucasus, which is the second stage of the war, the conquest of the Western Caucasus, that side of the Caucasus that is along the Black Sea coast. Um, and it is this event that has given rise to charges, um, particularly by Circassian and Adigay um, activists, that the Russian uh, government engaged in, in a policy of genocide. So the next big phase after the defeat of uh, Shamil is uh, in the Eastern Caucasus, is the Russian government shifts its attention to the Western Caucasus. And they actually, this along the Black Sea coast, and they say, what we need to do now is push to the end. We need to complete this program. We've been doing this for literally three or four decades. It's been very expensive. It's been very time consuming. It's a lot of blood and treasure. Um, let's put in a, a, a final decisive push. And they speak of achieving the final or definitive conquest of the Caucasus by seizing the Western Caucasus, what in Russian is the Akhenchatnaya Pakarenia Kavkaza. They plan to do so by engaging in what they themselves described was an entirely new set of measures and strategy. They were gonna, I, I don't call it ethnic cleansing because ethnic cleansing is a 20th century term and presumes that you're trying to um, move one population and replace it with a different national population. What was going on here was demographic engineering and population politics, a very targeted removal of, and total removal of specific groups. So the goal and, and the Russians meet Literally, there's, there's a, uh, a command council in 1859 at which this reforming war minister who's very close to our reforming Alexander II um, is chair. And they say, we're gonna try a new strategy in the Western Caucasus. Uh, and there's actually a very spirited debate. Many commanders don't wanna pursue this strategy. They wanna continue to pursue the strategy that led to triumph in 1859. It's, 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 it's slower. 
it's uh, more um, labor and time intensive, uh, but they believe it, it, it will lead to a better type of conquest. Against this, in a sense, the young Turks, the, 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 the young um, uh, people who believe they're waging a modern type of warfare, uh, Milutin is, is one of the first professors at the Staff Academy. One of the, the disciplines he introduces at the Staff Academy, the General Staff Academy, um, for all officers is a new discipline called military statistics. Um, you have, before the night, there, there's a very good literature in the history of science about how you move from a conception about a populace, which is sort of this amorphous group to a, a concrete idea of a population that's composed of discrete and identifiable groups within the population. This military statistics is designed almost as an ethnographic science to describe who's reliable and who's not reliable. This is all Milutin. Um, he and these modernizers argue that the war they're gonna wage in the Western Caucasus is gonna be one that is going to remove the population not by killing it, but they will offer the mountaineers a choice, two avenues out. One is they can choose to resettle in the Russian empire on the Kuban Plains, that is the plains to the north of this Caucasus mountain chain. Or they can choose to emigrate to the Ottoman empire, to their co-religionists. That's also an option, but they can't stay. That there's gonna be, in a sense, the total removal of that population so it's gonna compel them to move either to the Kuban Plain or to emigrate to the Caucasus. I mean, interestingly, in the course of these deliberations, Milutin explicitly compares and contrasts Russian policy in the Caucasus to what the United States is doing to Native Americans. And what he says is Native Americans are doing, uh, the, United States is government, the United States government is doing this to Native Americans, but it's doing it unsystematically and inhumanely. It's exterminating them but not giving them any options. We are going to, I mean, this is a total conceit. You can see the, the, the self-conceit in this. But what Milutin says is, um, we are going to do the same thing. We're going to remove them, but we'll remove them by giving them the option of settling onto essentially reservations in the North Kuban Plains or to emigrate to the Ottoman Empire. Um, the, by the way, the Russian military also very explicitly compared what they were doing in the Caucasus to what the French were doing in Algeria. Um, they were studying French colonial policies in Algeria against the Kabyles, who were the mountain tribes of Algeria. And in fact, if you read Russian military um, journals of the 1850s and 1860s, they discuss the French military campaigns and the terms in Russian for the Kabyle communities and for the Kabyles themselves are the exact same terms in Russian for the Chechen and Cherkess communities. So the, the settlements are Aouls for both the Kabyles in Algeria and for the uh, Chechens and Mountaineers. And the name for the two groups, the Kabyles and Russian Agartsi, and the Mountaineers in the Caucasus are also the Agartsi. So there was this type of inter-imperial learning that was going on. There was an awareness that this was part of a global process that was taking place. Milton actually, um, uh, contracts with several Russian steamship companies to move these tribes if they will get to the Black Sea coast. The Russians will pay for them to be shipped to the Ottoman Empire. Um, 
that's the pulling aspect. The push aspect is people got to the coast because the Russians conducted ruthless military campaigning that basically engaged in total scorched earth, burning down these communities, whether they resisted or not, whether there were combatants in it or not. Um, they, Russian officer accounts of this, these campaigns in, between 1859 and 1864 talk about smoke covering the sky, that you cannot see the sun because of the smoke that is rising from the communities that they're burning. So indiscriminate destruction of the communities as a means to drive these people to the coasts, where they're given the choice of resettle essentially into these reservations in the North Kuban Plains in the Russian Empire, or to resettle to the Ottoman Empire. And in fact, there's extensive diplomatic negotiations that go on between the Russian and Ottoman empires about the transfer of this population. This is not um, a wild or unplanned operation. The Russians actually diplomatically negotiate with the Ottomans about um, uh, moving these people as emigrants into the Ottoman Empire. And the Ottomans were very, the, the Ottoman Empire, which is demographically much weaker than the Russian Empire, was very eager to take in these people. Um, who also were known as ruthless fighters. In a sense, they'd, they'd end up with this, this excellent, not only a population, but a population of, of excellent, excellent uh, soldiers. Um, as part of this whole campaign in the Western Caucasus between 1859 and 1864, um, the Russians set up uh, over 140 Cossack communities. That is, they're depopulating on the one hand and injecting these Russian Cossack settlers on the other. But it's very clear what the agenda there was. In fact, we have a direct quote from Milutin in 1860, where he says, our goal um, is not to drive off the natives by settling, pardon me, not to drive off the natives so that we can settle Cossacks, that is to get Cossacks in there. Rather, our goal is to settle Cossacks so that we drive the natives out. That is the, the ultimate goal, the end goal, is to drive them out, not so much as to settle Cossacks. It's very interesting in terms of seeing what their agendas uh, are. Um, within these communities themselves, there's also a, 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 a pulmy aspect. So initially, especially in the first several years, there is a, a large, a significant degree of voluntary outmigration from the Western Caucasus uh, coming for two reasons. One, these populations did not want to end up uh, under the rule of the infidel. There was much fear that under the that all the reforms that are going on in Russia, that there was going to be this military reform and that they might be conscripted as citizens of the Russian Empire and have to fight against the co-religions of the Ottoman Empire. So there was a, a, a sense that um, there is more um, oppressive Russian rule coming, and it might mean that we will, in a sense, have, have to have much more engagement with a non-Muslim state, and we might be mobilized by that state to fight our co-religionists, and we don't like that. So that is a motive. Um, there's equally a motive, uh, especially among the elites, to uh, emigrate because they're afraid at this point, remember this is a reform era in Russia, that should Russian rule be established over the Caucasus, um, Rush, the, the Russian government will abolish their control over the dependent classes. 
Um, and so that's another factor that is, is, is at play. Um, most of the people that choose to, that are forced out of the mountains, that don't choose, they're literally forced by the Russian army out of the mountains, choose to emigrate rather than to settle on the Kuban plains. And despite the, what one might call, and I'm using air quotes here, humanitarian measures and concerns of Milutin um, and the Russian government, the process itself was absolutely brutal and ruthless. And because of the way in which it was conducted with this brutal campaigning, and because you had a high degree of malnutrition and especially epidemic diseases, you have massive, massive population loss, especially among women and children. Um, again, uh, both during the campaigning in the Caucasus, during the transit, one might call it a, a Caucasian you know, uh, middle passage, and then further losses during their time um, in the Ottoman Empire. If we want to talk scale, it is estimated that in the Western Caucasus, between five to 600,000 people in less than five years were expelled. And this is the age before you know, a wide railroad network. This is all steamships and walking. So five to 600,000 people, over half a million. And it is estimated, um, despite the hiring of steamships, despite, despite the setting up of food stations, both in the Russian Empire and in the Ottoman Empire, at least half of those people perished. So we're talking about a major humanitarian tra tragedy. Um, as a result of this process. Again, it, 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 it's, it's not as if the Russians wished and waved a wand and wanted all of these casualties, but they set up uh, the conditions in which all of this happened. Um, and as a result, um, the Russians by 1864 have managed to cut off and mop up all of the resisting areas in the Western Caucasus. They, they have effectively entirely depopulated this region. Um, they themselves writing in late 1863 and throughout 1864, and I've read many of these accounts, the, the Russians themselves describe a totally empty land, a, a, a beautiful and very rich land that's full of vineyards and uh, fruit orchards, uh, but it's totally empty and absolutely uh, devastated. Um, this is considered the final conquest of the Caucasus, 1864, and it is uh, marked by um, a celebratory uh, visit by Alexander II. Um, I want to underscore here, I mean, it, these events are often described as a result of a Russian anti-Muslim bias. I am not convinced of this um, for this reason alone. Um, if you'll notice, the groups that end up being expelled are not the groups that had most vociferously resisted Russian rule. The question you've got to ask is not why were Muslims expelled. The question you've got to ask is why was it Muslims from the Western Caucasus, which had resisted Russian rule less, expelled, and not the uh, Muslim tribes of the um, Eastern Caucasus, uh, Dagestan and Chechnya, which had, had been much more uh, uh, violently opposed, much more successfully organized against uh, Russian rule. I mean, the Russian empire has a very conflicted 
ambivalent relationship with its Muslim communities. There, there's a great historical literature on this. But I want to remind you that, that at, at, at the end of the day, the Russian Empire had a much larger Muslim population than the Ottoman Empire did. With some of these populations, it, it had a very conflicted relationship, but it was able to accommodate um, uh, a good number of other communities. So it's not all black and white. It's a spectrum of, of grays. Um, what I would suggest is that the reason the Russians were so frantic about immediately and definitively solving the uh, problem of the Western Caucasus um, is civilizational and geopolitical. Civilizational is, remember the military statistics and this type of ethnography that they've done? They write that the tribes of the Eastern Caucasus resisted us under Shamil, but they resisted us you know, as entire societies. They could organize themselves as societies. And now that Shamil has been defeated, they have the you know, possibilities of civic development. They've demonstrated that ability to, to organize and act, um, whereas the tribes of the Western Caucasus, despite the fact that they resisted the Russians less, were much more fractious and divided and seemed to hold out much less promise in the Russians' eyes, and this is again, a conceit of their own, uh, much less of a prospect of being turned into um, you know, modern citizens in this new reforming era. The fundamental reason, however, I think is at the end of the day, geopolitical. It was, it was the unfortunate circumstance of these tribes to be living in the Western Caucasus on the Black Sea coast in the aftermath of the Treaty of Paris of 1856. The time of this definitive campaigning occurs with the British and the French and the Ottomans continuing to land ships with emissaries in arms, trying to raise these tribes, um, which becomes um, deathly relevant for the Russian empire because there's the Polish rebellion occurring in 1862, uh, uh, 1863. And there's a great fear on the part of the Russian government because the French government and the British government generally support the Poles, that they are on the cusp of a recreation of the Crimean War coalition, France and Britain and the Ottomans, under the pretext of saving Poland, and the one sore point they could immediately get to would be the Western Caucasus coast, which now does not have any Russian naval presence. And a, a good number of the Russian documents speak about the fact that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, if, if we don't act now, we might lose everything that we have been fighting for for several decades uh, in the Caucasus. Um, and again, uh, the, the question one must, one must ask oneself is, is not, did, did the Russian empire expel Muslims? It most certainly did, but why didn't it do so in total, you know, en masse, everybody? It, the Russians do not expel the Chechens. And in fact, after the Polish crisis passes in 1865, the Russian government in the Caucasus passes a decree and says, no more mass migration. We're gonna keep these people here. Um, so it was not it was not an intentional policy, I would argue, of, of total ethnic cleansing or population exchange 
of Muslims as Muslims. Um, it was a, a dynamic, you know, growing out of the ongoing struggles in the Caucasus and the particular geopolitical moment. So then I guess the next part, real quickly, we can talk about it is, so we, we extensively talked about like Russia's involvement in the foreign area of this. So I guess we can a little bit talk about the domestic um, era of Alexander II's rule. So you quickly covered this earlier on about like how um, they wanted, uh, Alexander II wanted to reform Russia into this new modern society. So can you talk about that a little bit more about, um, so he got rid of the serfs, uh, serfdom to, in order to get this new modern society. And mm -hmm. why was that? Why did he want it? Why was he so, like, he had this emphasis on a liberal structure there? I would say the Russian emperors since the age of, of Catherine the Great had not been in favor of serfdom. They were simply, um, if, if they could have um, uh, dissolved serfdom with the wave of a wand, I think they would have done it. Um, I would say many Russian emperors from Catherine the Great on were much more suspicious of the serf landowners than they were of the serfs themselves. The dilemma was one reason serfdom existed is that it was a way of, um, in a sense, administering an empire that uh, encompassed one sixth of the world's land surface on the cheap, that you basically have um, devolved administrative authority over you know, a large portion of the population, half of the peasant population, uh, over to these landowners, because you simply do not have the amount of state revenue or bureaucracy to administer them directly yourselves. So I think there was a willingness, even uh, th there were 11 commissions that were convened under the arch reactionary Nicholas I, rules 1825 to 1855, that discussed ways to reform or to abolish serfdom. The dilemma was they, they couldn't come up with, so they agreed it needed to end, but they could not agree how to evolve into something new. And in a sense, all that the Crimean War does for Alexander II is it makes incontrovertible the idea that we have to reform. And in a sense, the real big debate about the, the whole emancipation of the serfs is not if, but how. If it's, 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 it's like the de de debate around emancipation in the United States. Not if you're going to do it, but if you're going to do it, it's going to be simply a legal emancipation or is it going to be 40 acres and a mule? Um, I mean, that was a great point of debate um, and really the great issue about uh, the emancipation of the serfs. Not if, um, not even so much when after the uh, defeat in the Crimean War, but how. And in a sense, um, you know, you could really look at the emancipation of the serfs as a glass half full or glass half empty. And there's a great scholarship taking each side. Um, first of all, it's, it's an absolutely immense administrative feat to emancipate these millions of serfs, assign them uh, plots of land that are uh, determined and marked out based on the land qualities of each individual province. I mean, just think about the administrative work that goes into that, that the Russian empire had not had to that point. You establish an administrative structure for half of the peasant population that had never existed. Um, 
So that's the glass half full part of it. They, I mean, they they moved, they got it done. They did it without a civil war. Uh, Alexander II was able to shove this down the throats of the nobles who resisted it. Uh, they didn't want this. Um, again, uh, bloodless. Uh, the glass half empty side of the story is the concessions and accommodations that were made to make it possible meant that you didn't have a full and total reform. And that, that the question you ask is not, was the reform successful on February 19th, 1861? Well, it was. They emancipated the serfs. The critics side, the glass half empty side says, the measuring stick is not February 19th, 1861. The measuring stick is 1917. That did, did you do enough? Did you go as far as you needed to go after having not acted for half a century, the first half of the 19th century, really in reforming anything? Did it go far enough to bring Russia to modernizing so that it could forestall revolution? And the critics' argument is that, you know, no, it didn't. Um, I, 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 I occupy a sort of moderate position. I mean, what needs to be remembered is that the people who embarked on the emancipation of the serfs never intended that to be a one and done act. That you sort of do February 19th, you issued a decree, you wash your hands, one and done, it's over. They conceived of it as a broader process of turning these peasants into citizens. Um, and you know the problem is, if you depend on a process in a monarchy, you are hostage to whatever the next monarch decides to do. And the next monarch who comes to the throne is Alexander III, who comes to the throne in the wake of his dad being blown up by a bunch of terrorists. Um, and he decided to, in a sense, move off in a different direction in terms of these reforms. Um, it's, it's, it, he's famously described as engaging in what are called the counter-reforms of the 1880s and early 1890s. Um, I, I would qualify that and say he, they're reforms in a different direction, but they're definitely um, in, a, in a different direction than had been uh, undertaken by Alexander II. No, I, uh, I actually did have a question going back to um going back to the Circassian genocide. Uh, mm -hmm. So I was just wondering why did the Russian empire give them the provision that they could move to the Kuban, uh, Kuban plain? Because it seems a little bit counterintuitive to me because uh, they would still occupy a region that is, that is bordered by the Black Sea and would allow shipments of arms. So it, um, it's just a question I had. I'm not, I'm not mm -hmm. entirely sure why they did that. Mm -hmm. I mean, the first thing that's telling us that they that, that they never entertained the idea as the, the result of much of their actions was mass death, but they never entertained as a policy purpose just the outright extermination. That that was that that to a degree that happened, but it was not what was intended to happen. Um, they they we could certainly argue they could have done more to forestall it. Um, in the area of the Kuban Plain, um, they, they, they're simply the Russian presence there was much more robust and uh, the Russian army was much more present and uh, the fear of uh, any landings there was much less uh, pronounced. Um, there, were this, there was simply such a small footprint in the Caucasus 
proper along the Black Sea coast that the Russians were really, really uh, concerned about that. I mean, th there was equally concern on the Russian side about shipping these people off to the Ottomans. And in fact, one of the you know, extensive points of discussion in the diplomacy between the Russians and the Ottomans was where precisely these people will be settled because the Russians were very insistent that they didn't want them settled immediately on the opposite side of our border. Um, and then they could be mobilized and used against us. Uh, part of the argument, by the way, for the Russians was also that they did not want um, the uh, mountaineers, the Cherkess and the Adige, settled on the other side of uh, the Ottoman side of the um, uh, Caucasus boundary because they thought they would uh, unsettle and make weaker the Kurdish tribes that were based there. And the fact is the Russians in both the Crimean War and later in the 1877-78 Russo-Turkish War actually were very successful in their diplomacy with um, Kurdish tribal chieftains. And they, they actually viewed the, the, Kurds, the Kurds as, as something of a cat's paw that they would be able to use against the, that is Kurdish, uh, Ottoman Kurdish uh, tribes against the Ottoman uh, forces proper. Um, uh, unfortunately, for many of the, for, for a portion of these Cherkess and Adige, they got settled in the Balkans. And they very unfortunately had to <laughs> see the return of Russian forces in 1877-78, when the Russian army sees them again as the Russians advance into Bulgaria. And um, they, they once again have to uh, 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 move. Uh, there, there's a mass, um, large population movement, especially Muslims, um, towards uh, Istanbul uh, in the course of this, this campaign. Um, I have several readings to suggest that people are interested in this topic. Of course, yes. yes. Uh, so, so, so first of all, it, it, it is a work of fiction. I've already plugged it. The first is uh, Leo Tolstoy's uh, Haji Marad, which is, as I said, in terms of just um, aesthetics, is regarded by many literary scholars as being uh, Tolstoy's uh, you know, finest uh, work of prose fiction. It's a work that is about the struggle in the Caucasus in the 1850s and the ambivalences that take place. And it's a topic uh, both, I mean, Tolstoy had served in the Caucasus and he engages in serious historical research to write this story. Um, I can recommend also um, an article in the Encyclopedia of Islam, third edition by Alexander Knish. Um, the article, uh, the, the article, the encyclopedia entry is called um, Al-Kabak, which is the Arabic term for the Caucasus. It's, it's a really uh, sensitive and informed treatment. And if you want a monograph um, on this region, I can recommend Austin Gersild, that's J-E-R-S-I-L-D, Orientalism and Empire, the North Caucasus Mountain Peoples and the Georgian Frontier, 1845 to 1917. For people who are interested in Alexander II, um, I can recommend a web page, a web history, a web book history by a scholar who teaches at Michigan State named Walter Moss. It's called Alexander II and His Times. It tells about the era of Alexander II through individual cameos and vignettes, through individual lives. It's a very engaging way of, of, of learning about the, the reign of Alexander II. Thank you. And I just have one final question to kind of to wrap things up. I find it interesting how there is 
how you can contrast Alexander II's foreign policy, you know, the, the conquest of the Caucasus with his passi- rather pacifist foreign policy objectives. And then also you can contrast his, his liberal reforms at home, like emancipating the serfs with a genocide, not within his borders, like in, in the Caucasus. So mm-hmm. that, that leads me to a, to a question, actually. It's, so would you say that the liberal reforms enacted by Alexander II led to the rise of anarchist movements in Russia, which then eventually led to you know, his assassination? And then, and then would you say, that this is a second question then, is would you say that Alexander III's response in, in his counter-reform what, what, that was a response to the rise in anarchist movements. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first thing I would say is um, when I teach Alexander II, both in my undergraduate and graduate classes, um, I stress that I, I don't consider him a liberal. I consider him progressive. But, um, you know, his, his agenda is to make more effective Russian state and Russian society. Um, and he is, for instance, is not going to limit autocracy in part because he believes that only autocracy is able to achieve modernization in the conditions of, uh, of Russia. So I, I, um, I think it's a category error to think of Alexander II um, as a liberal across the board. Um, as I said, I think it's much more constructive to think of him as uh, progressive. I mean, look, uh, the the anarchist and nihilist uh, movements had begun before the reign of uh, Alexander II. They certainly strengthened under his reign. Um, I would point to two things. One, the loosening of the press, which makes a sort of semiosphere of discussion much more possible. But um, uh, equally as importantly is the fact that um, for all that he did, there was an immense sense of disillusionment and disappointment that he didn't do more. And it was uh, a sense of betrayal that led many people to end up um, end up opposing him. I mean, the, the great irony is here's the guy who's, who's, who's known as the czar liberator, ends up getting blown up um, by his own people in 1881 after you know a, a revolutionary court has passed a death sentence over him. Um, I would certainly say that, uh, uh, look, if you, if you believe Alexander II was not liberal but progressive and that there were always these shoots of you know, statism, and Alexander II certainly partook of some of that, um, Alexander III doesn't seem to fall as, as far away from that tree if you look at it that way. Nevertheless, it's, it's, it's absolutely unambiguous that um, Alexander III embraces a m- much more um, reactionary slash counter-revolutionary program. I mean, when Alexander II is assassinated, he has embarked on a policy that's trying to come to some type of reconciliation with educated society. Uh, that is immediately stopped by Alexander III, who then also immediately fires all of the so-called liberal ministers, among whom includes this war minister, uh, Milutin, who is progressive, but had also had a major hand in this uh, major population expulsion of the Circassians. Um, and I, I'd also add that it's, you know, it's, 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 it's a changing, much more pessimistic time. I mean, the 1860s were an era of Victorianism, of faith in progress, 
um, of positivism, um, you know, history is unfolding towards its fated end. That there's much more skepticism and doubt about that by the 1880s, and I think that type of, you know, frankly, fear is is informing a lot of Alexander Luther's policies. All right. Well, thank you so much. I love talking about Russian history. So anytime I can do it with whoever I can do it, I'm happy to do so. All so right. uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, and I hope you have a great week. All right. Yep. Thank, thank you. you so much, Dr. Volkmist. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Katakar. Make sure to check out some of our other episodes on our website at katakar.media. You can also listen to them on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and many more podcast services. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to join us next time.